When I heard about tonight and Jay approached me, Jay, thank you for the opportunity to speak tonight. I'm honored. But when Jay told me the text that I was going to be walking through Jonah 4, I was like, hey, this is going to be lighthearted. You know, I'm going to land the plane. This is going to be great. And he switched it up a little bit until I started reading the text. It was like, oh, this is so convicting, like every other part of the Bible. But um, as, I, as I read uh, Jonah 4 over and over and over again, I really felt convicted in a lot of ways in my life. And I'm really excited about what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the topic that we're going to be talking about is righteous anger. And here's what I want you to take away before our time is concluded this evening. Take control of the righteous anger in your life. Some of you might hear that word and you're like, what does that mean? That's like seeing someone that's mocking God or violating his law and celebrating it. And something wells up inside of you. You get a little heated. You get a little angry. It's Jesus being in the temple flipping tables, that kind of righteous anger. I'm going to start by saying this. Righteous anger is a great thing. And it is one of the greatest evidences of God's grace working in and through your life. If you come to a place in your life and you hate the things that you once loved, your sin. That is one of the greatest testimonies of God's grace working in and through your life and his power to save you. If you have that righteous anger that wells up in you at certain moments, that is a good thing. Because God calls us to be holy just as he is holy. But here's where it can get twisted. If you take that feeling and it keeps you from reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you see someone in their sin and that righteous anger wells up and your reaction is, I want that person to die in their sin and I want them to suffer the consequences of their sin and it holds you back from sharing the gospel, that's when it becomes bad. I'm going to be straight up with you tonight. I've experienced that feeling many times in my life. And I've allowed that to hold me back from extending the grace of God to other people. But as I read this text, I was so convicted. And God brought me back to the conviction of who he is and his grace that's worked in and through my life and what I'm called to do when those feelings rise up, and that's take control of it, and that's the calling upon your life, too, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about tonight, how do we take control of that? How do we take control of that righteous anger? And what we're going to see from Jonah chapter 4, a historical event, is the way that Jonah represents us in many ways, and how we can process this together. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to dive right in to Scripture. So go ahead, if you have a Bible, open up to Jonah chapter 4. If you have your phone, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read our text tonight. I'm going to pray, and we are going to dive right in. This is what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade. 
till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. God, I thank you for the power of your word. And God, I thank you for the power to save. Lord, I thank you at 19 years old, a messed up, broken kid. You entered my life and saved me by your grace. God, I'm thankful that for the last 10 years, you've worked in my heart. God, you've made me more into the image of Jesus as you've molded me. Holy Spirit, as you've changed me. God, I confess to you, God, at moments I've failed. I've taken that change. I've taken the righteous anger that wells up in me at times, Lord. And I look at people that are different than me, that are still dead in their sin. And Lord, I haven't extended the gospel to them. God, forgive me for that. Lord, I ask tonight that this message would first impact my heart and mind. And Lord, I ask that as I walk out of here tonight, that I would never do that again. Lord, I pray that for those people in this room, that if there's ever a moment where someone's different, different than them, hard to love, God, that they would always press in that they would channel that feeling and share the gospel with them as well. Because, God, we are covered by your grace if we are a child of God. So, Lord, I ask that you would meet us here tonight. God, use the power of your word to change our lives. And, Lord, I, I ask that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a clip that went viral online. It was a clip of a room full of state legislators in New York City celebrating the passage of a bill allowing people in the state of New York to kill their child up into the moment of birth. The bill came on the floor. It was debated. It passed, and the room erupted in applause. applause. People were cheering. People were high-fiving. Literally, one of the biggest buildings in New York, they put beams of light to celebrate what had just happened. And as I saw that video go viral and I saw the reaction of those people, righteous anger began to well up in my heart. That feeling came up once or twice from that point, but about a year and a half later, there was a big rally in California of women celebrating their abortion. Literally cheering, crying out, high-fiving, doing the same thing that I saw and that feeling began to well up in me again. I understand the sensitivity of that topic. And there's other topics that make that same reaction well up in me that we see. Injustice and other things in our culture. But in that moment, seeing those people react in that way, that righteous anger welled up inside of me. I'm sure that for many of you, if you've called out to God, and have experienced his grace, and his spirit's come to live inside of you and dwell in you, as you've grown more into the image of Jesus, 
There might have been a moment in your life where you've had a similar experience. There might have been a moment where you see someone say something about God, or you might be in a class here, and you really struggle. That feeling that I'm talking about, that, that almost that righteous anger wells up inside of you. When that began in my life years ago, early in my walk with the Lord, I didn't know what to do with that. I was a broken kid around a bunch of broken people. And for a long time, I just used that and channeled that to just share the gospel. My passion would, would come out as I wanted to reach people with the news that had changed me. But as I grew older and I spent more times in rooms like this with fellow believers in Christ, as my friend group of unsaved people became smaller and smaller, there have been times where I've had to check my own heart and I see people outside of the walls of places like this as them versus us. Some of these themes have echoed all the way through the book of Jonah. And tonight we pick up and we see the heart of Jonah truly displayed before God. At the beginning of this book, we see the calling upon Jonah's life to go and reach the city of Nineveh, his running away from God, his trying to leave the calling that was upon his life, and finally him submitting to this call. But ultimately what we see beginning right at the beginning of chapter 4 is that Jonah fully lays out his heart before God. And what we see is that the reason he did not want to reach those people is because of his identity of who he was, a follower of God, the one true God, the God of Israel. It was an us versus them mentality. It was those people in Nineveh don't honor God. Those people in Nineveh are far from God, and I'm trying to seek after him. And he begins by laying out his heart and saying, I knew what you would have done if you would have gone to that place. I knew you would have saved those people because you are merciful and gracious and just. The first encouragement I would give to you tonight is as you learn to take control of your righteous anger, if you truly want to do that, if you want to learn to channel that for the glory of God, remember that God is gracious and he is merciful. Look with me again at verses 1 to 3. It says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly that he became angry, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, this is not what I said when I was still in my country. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He lays it all up before God in one moment. And he models for us sometimes the place that we get to if we spend enough time in a room like this among other people just like ourselves, followers of Jesus Christ. We forget what God has brought us from and brought us into. We forget that once we were children of wrath, alienated from the family of God, and he's brought us in to be adopted as sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. We forget the grace that he poured upon us, the sin he forgave, the sin he overlooked, the transformation of our hearts and minds. And we forget what God's done in and through us by his grace. And you see this, this tension all throughout the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New, it continues over and over and over again. In the Old, it was... Jew versus Gentile, the constant battle. Literally, Jews would go into Gentile places and they would kick off the dust of their feet when they would leave because they didn't want to be soiled by the presence of Gentiles. Gentiles looked in at the Jewish culture and didn't understand how they lived or their customs or how they worshiped God. 
And we see that continue all through the Old Testament until we get to the New, and then it becomes a new tension. It's the church versus those not in the church. I want you to turn with me tonight in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32, and I want to remind you what God has done in and through your life if you're a child of God. I want to remind you the grace that has transformed you, and I want to remind you the condition of the people that are outside of places like this, people that you walk around every single day, thousands and thousands and thousands of other students on this campus who are lost, dead in their sin, and far from God. So Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, beginning in verse 17. Listen to what he says. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt, according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him whose soul steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that me ha- that he may have something to give him who, is- who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So the tension I talked about in the Old Testament, in the New, it carried over, and there was just constant tension. There was constant infighting going on in the churches of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, monogamy and polygamy, all kinds of stuff were happening that they were trying to sort out. And what Paul makes clear is the condition of people that are not yet with us. For those of us that are in the family of God, the people that are outside that are not yet with us are in a condition, and he lays it out clearly. He says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all in cleanness with greediness. So I think there are times in my heart where if I've struggled to get over my righteous anger and instead and extend the grace of God to someone, I've truly forgotten that those who are not in Christ are literally dead in their sin. They're blinded to their sin. They don't know any different. They're fallen. But, if you've experienced the grace of God, you have a different calling on your life. You have a different future. The blinders are taken off. That's why he says in verse 25, Therefore put away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Then he talks about, don't steal any longer. Work with your hands. Do what's good. Speak words that are going to build up the body of Christ and edify one another. And the way that he can say that, the only reason that he can do that is because those blinders have come off and the grace of God 
has changed our vision. It's changed the reality in which we live. We're no longer in darkness. We are now in the light. We're not walking in foolishness. We see the truth of God working in us and through us. And I think it's an important reminder for all of us that if you are in the light, there's always space for you to fall. There's always space for for you to stumble. There's always space for you to backslide. And the reason I know that is because I did that in a serious way in college. Some of you are maybe in a season right now where you're backsliding. But 10 years ago for me, the stakes were really high. So at 19 years old, after walking through a season of five years where my life was gripped by alcohol, drugs, sexual sin, everything you can think of, all of that came crashing down in a parking lot in North St. Louis when I was shot in the head in a drug deal gone bad. Pulled up, two guys got in my car, Mazda 3 hatchback, went to make the exchange and guy in the back of my head, back of my car, pulled out a gun, put it against my head, and as time froze, leaned back and pulled the trigger. That nine millimeter bullet went through my shoulder, clipped my earlobe, went through my brain, and stopped resting on my eye here. And by the grace of God, I got up that night. I woke up, got out of my car, figured out what had happened after calling a couple of people and called 911. And then within a couple minutes, an ambulance came, picked me up, and I remember everything to them cutting my clothes off and putting an IV in my arm. And a couple days later, I woke up in the hospital with half my skull missing. And as I looked in that mirror and thought, I'm never going to be the same. I'm going to be ugly the rest of my life. How did I get here? People began to speak into my life. God is with you. God has a purpose for your life. And honestly, in my heart in that season, I said, screw God. I don't know if I shared this with everyone in uh, my story, but just to paint a picture for how hardened my heart was in that season, I was in a rehab hospital. I was in the hospital for six weeks, went to an outpatient hospital, and when I got to the outpatient hospital, my friends came and got me before my skull was even put back in, rolled me out, blasting Waka Flocka, (laughs) and went outside and smoked a bowl of weed and came back in and passed out. I got out, and I was putting on the front, acting like I wanted to get better, and I didn't. Still doing drugs. And one day I got a call from my friend after I got my bone flap and my head put back in. A couple of weeks after my surgery, I was on some low-dose painkillers that were prescribed to me. My friends came and picked me up, and we went to play Frisbee golf. Drank half a beer that day, and on the third hole, went to throw the frisbee and had a seizure. For the next year, really a year and a half, I was sober, and God was using me in a powerful way to witness to my fraternity brothers, people that saw the transformation and the change that happened in my life, and God was using me as a witness. But there came a point my junior year where I began to question God. I began to ask and see, is this worth it? I began to ask, is this even making a difference? And seeing all the people around me that seemed to be getting ahead, to be having fun partying, 
and doing everything that I had once done. And for about a year of my life, I began to backslide, began to use drugs again, began to go out and party. And the whole time, I knew the darkness I was walking in. I, I experienced conviction that whole season of my life. And God had to allow me to stumble and walk for about a year before I came back crying out to him on my knees saying, God, take me back. God, don't let me go. God, forgive me of my sin. And in that season, God reminded me that all of us can backslide. All of us are Ninevites. All of us are sinners. And the only, the only reason I'm standing before you today is because of the grace of God forgiving me of my sin and leading me through that season. And so from that point, for the last eight years, as God has continued to grow me into the image of Jesus, I've forgotten not only that I was a wretch and that he saved me, but that I backslid. That I fell back into the sin of people that I now look at and say, They're, it's us versus them. God was gracious and merciful to forgive me of my sin. God has been gracious and merciful to forgive me of my sin all the way up to this day. And God, if he has saved you, was gracious and merciful to forgive you of your sin. So here's what I want you to do. The next seven days, I want you to walk around this campus and I want you to look at people as you're passing by. I want you to look at them in the face. And I want you to envision people as if they had a black box over their eyes. I want you to envision them as if they can't see. And I want you to use that as a reminder that every person that you see that's fallen and alienated from God, they're in that place because they don't know any different. Their mind is darkened. Their eyes are darkened. And the only way for the blinders to come off and for them to see the light is for you to share the gospel with them. And when you realize that people are fallen, you also re realize and remember that people are selfish. Look with me again at verses 5 to 9 in Jonah chapter 4. So it says this, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Verse 9 says, Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry Excuse me, about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. I think it's important, whether it's in this room, whether it's in class, wherever you might be on campus, whether you're interacting with believers or unbelievers, one of the ways that you can clearly let go of your righteous anger is just really remember that people are selfish at their core. Redeemed, unredeemed, man, we get our feelings hurt a lot. Maybe some of you are mad at someone even in this room. And really, you just have to remember that people are selfish. Like I said, Jonah is a representation of people. This all really happened, but he represents you and I and our heart. Look again at the things that Jonah is selfish of. He's selfish for his desire for comfort. Verse 5, so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. 
So after telling off God, Jonah gets out of the city and he makes his way to the east side. If you think about what time of the day this could have been, the midday, if that was the truth, that means that the sun would have been high and the east side of the city would have been the place where he would have gotten the most shade. So he gets over to the east side, he sets up a little camp, he's got a shelter for shade, and he's literally looking into the city wondering what's going to happen. And I think probably deep down in his heart thinking, man, is God going to drop the hammer right now? He had a selfish desire for comfort. He was ungrateful for God's common grace. Listen to what it says in verse 6. He said, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from the misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it is so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So some of you might not have heard that, that word before, common grace. That's literally the grace that God bestows on all humanity, believer and unbeliever. So the fact that the sun rose every day and uh, sets, and the fact that the moon... I'm laughing at, at Ashley. I'm not very good at my, uh, my astronomy here. Hey, um, the fact that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the fact that God makes the seasons change every year, that's all common grace that both believers and unbelievers experience. And for most of us, all throughout our life, God is just, just showering that upon us, His grace daily. And we either take it for granted or things start not going our way. And we're like, God, you know, what are you doing? So he, he was ungrateful for God's common grace, but then he was overreacting when he didn't get his way. Listen again in verse 8. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Talk about an overreaction. I think that's a, a reflection of you. It's a reflection of me at times. Things are going great. And the moment we don't get our way, we say, God, what are you doing? It'd be better for me to die than to live. It's easy for us to forget that people are selfish. It's easy for us to forget that we're selfish. And it's easy for, for us to forget that over and over and over again, we fall into the same traps that I just walked through with Jonah. My junior year of college, right before I walked through that season of backsliding and wandering, God was using me in a powerful way at Lindenwood University. I was sharing my testimony with my fraternity brothers. I was in leadership of an organization just like this. God was opening doors for me to speak, to share my testimony. And during that season, God placed me in an internship at a, a church, a church plant that was thriving. God was working in a powerful way. People were getting saved. And on any given night, there'd be a room of about 600 people, you're in my age, 18 to 35 years old, that would come worship God, hear the word, and would get discipled. God was working powerfully. He opened a door for me to begin to serve there. And as I stepped in, now I started doing grunt work. I started moving chairs. I did whatever needed to happen. But God was super gracious through the elders of that church to pour into my life, to speak into me, to give me opportunities to learn to humble myself in that setting. And at the end of my internship, selfish junior, I walked away from that church. And I had all these reasons that I walked away. The internship wasn't what I thought it was going to be. 
I don't know if I fit in in this church. All these things are running through my head. And in my selfish heart, I walked away from that church. And I didn't do it in a good way. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to have these deep conversations with the elders. I'm going to tell my community group leaders. No, it was, hey, I'm going to slowly check out and back out. And I just removed myself from that church. And for years, that bothered me. And by God's grace, I've had opportunities since that day to go and to confess my sin to those elders, to ask for forgiveness to the people that I walked away from. Some of you might be walking through the same thing right now. You feel confused. You don't know where you should be serving. You don't know the church that you're at, if it's where you're supposed to be. And in that process, you might come into interactions with people where you feel like they're wronging you. Here's what I would say to protect your heart. Remember that people are selfish. We're all fallen. And we can step away from that by God's grace. He can redeem those moments of selfishness in our life. But at our core, people are selfish. So here's what I would encourage you with. If you're in a moment like that, or if you interact with someone who may be far from God and you're trying to reach them with the gospel, be the first person to apologize in a situation. Be the first person to extend grace. Be the first person to reach across the aisle and try to redeem that situation and watch as God works in and through you. I'm telling you that tonight, not just preaching it to you, but I'm living it out. This Monday, after a long weekend, I had a call with one of the leaders in our ministry and we hadn't seen eye to eye on something. And on Monday morning, bright and early, I sat in a call and humbled myself with one of them and said I was wrong. Please forgive me. And we reconciled in that moment. And what I can tell you is in those moments, God's grace is so tangible and sweet. God will work in and through you humbling yourself and reaching other people when you're willing to be the first one to apologize. And whether it's in a room like this or if you're trying to reach other people with the gospel who are far from God, be quick to apologize. Be quick to extend grace and watch as God blesses you in and through that and helps you to control those feelings of anger that we're talking about, that righteous anger. And then here's the last thing I want to leave you with tonight. Remember that you are not in control. Look with me again at verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, I'm going to back up to verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock. So as Jonah's stepping up to God, God's coming right back, and he's essentially saying, are you saying it's wrong for me to extend my compassion to my creation? He's coming back at Jonah. He's putting the ball back in his court and he's saying, who are you to step up to me and call me out for who I'm going to bestow my grace upon and shower upon? It's a question that we see over and over again in the Bible that God would pose that. Who are you to call out to me and ask who I would, who I would shower with my grace, who I would save, who I would extend my mercy to? And we see it here in Jonah, but in the New Testament, we see it in the church. As God is bringing his covenant people, Israel, into the church, grafting them in and grafting in the Gentiles, there was those fights breaking out that I talked about. Jews were asking, how can these Gentiles come into the church? 
How can they be accepted by the grace of God? They weren't the recipients of the covenants. They weren't the recipients of the oracles of God. How, are, how is this group of people, this dirty group of people coming into the church? And on the flip side, the Gentiles are getting saved. And they're like, who are these Jews? Why are they here? They've always hated us. They've always maligned us. What are we going to do together? In Romans chapter 9, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he's trying to square away a dispute. And he's trying to paint the picture of how God simultaneously is grafting in his covenant people, Israel, and he's also bringing in the Gentiles, who up to that point it had been a mystery that they would ever be saved, that they would ever receive the grace of God, that they would ever be born again by God's Spirit. I want you to turn with me in Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 24, a very, very famous portion of Scripture. I'm sure there might have been some late-night conversations with you all, debating back and forth about what this text means. And a lot of people like to talk about and focus on that word, the elect. What does that mean? Who are those people? Some of you might come to the conviction and conclusion that God is talking about individual believers, but right here, Paul is highlighting two groups of people as well, talking about God's covenant people and the Israel and the Gentiles. I'm going to pick up in verse 6 for context, but follow along with me. So Paul's writing to the church in Rome, to Jews and Gentiles, and this is what he says. But it is not that the word of God is taking no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your, your seed shall be called, that is, those who are not the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What, sh what shall we then say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, in whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed, thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter of power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So I'm going to break that down for you. Paul's setting the stage and he's talking about two groups of people. And it comes through two lines of the offspring. He talks about Jacob, and he talks about Esau. Esau was the firstborn in the lineage of Abraham. He was the firstborn, and he was 
bigger in stature, he was stronger, he was more prominent, but he was also the firstborn, and therefore the promise was to be extended to him. But when he comes out, Jacob is born, and God decides to extend his grace, choose Jacob, and allow his line to bring the word of God to the rest of the world, all of the Gentiles of the world, people like you and me, people that were not born Jews. He's talking about two groups of people, and he's saying that God chose this line even though Esau should have been the one that had received the promise and God used as the recipient of his grace. He goes on and says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So Paul's anticipating that the Jews are going to say, that's un, or the Gentiles are going to say, that's unrighteous. How could you have chosen him? He should have received the birthright. But in this moment, he's saying, God, God declares, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Who are you to question me? Whom are you to choose to question who I choose to extend my grace to? So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may de be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and in whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one for a dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long sufferings the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So what Paul is talking about here is there was always a group of people who had believed in Israel. There was always a remnant of believers. But for a time, God has hardened pockets and portions of Israel, the nation of Israel, to the truth of God so that he can graft in the Gentiles, people like you and me, into his grace, to receive his grace. And the vessels of mercy, you and I, are the ones that God is graciously leading along, pulling us into the family of God, and unifying all groups of people into himself. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles? You are not in control. God will call anyone that he wants to his grace. And he's graciously extended you an invitation, if you're a child of God, to be used by him to extend the gospel. The message that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came into the world 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could never live, healed people, hung out with lepers and prostitutes, taught the word of God, perfectly upheld the law, went to a cross and died and absorbed God's righteous wrath against sin upon himself. And three days, rose, three days later rose from the dead, conquering over those things. God has given you that message to go out and to reach anyone and everyone that you see. 
the way that you're going to learn to control your righteous anger is by sharing the gospel freely with everyone. You are not the arbiter. You are not the judge of who can receive God's grace. It's our calling to extend it to every single person that you see and ask and pray and plead that God would use you and your brokenness and your feeble efforts to reach people with a foolish message to the world and see him work powerfully in and through your life. You have a card on your chair. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do this week. If you have a moment in your week where you struggle to extend the gospel to someone, I'm going to ask that you would keep this card in your pocket for one week. Ladies, maybe in your purse. And anytime you struggle to extend the gospel, I want you to pull this out and I want you to look at this card. On the front are the scales of justice and on the back is Romans chapter 9 verses 15. It says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Read that verse. Memorize that verse. Meditate on that verse. Think about that verse. And let the truth of it compel you to share the gospel with every single person that you've seen. As our band comes up tonight to lead us in a time of worship, I want, to sh- I want to share with you a story of how God used that scripture in my life. My senior year of college, I was in a class called Islam in the West. God had brought me out of that season of darkness that I was talking to you about, and I began to learn about a religion that rules the life of 1.2 billion people in the world today. A religion that shares a lot of similarities with our faith, but are different in so many ways. And as I sat through that class, and at times that righteous anger welled up inside of me when I heard Muslims say, Jesus isn't God, he's just a prophet. As people would say, the Bible is flawed. The Quran is the word of God. As people shared things that I didn't believe with at all, my friend Chase and I took that that semester and we were intentional about building friendships with Muslims in that class. One of the Muslims in that class was the imam on our campus. Born in France in a secular home, means no one in his family believed in God. Sal was from the Middle East. His mom was French. And during college, he moved over to play ball here in the States, up in Missouri, where I'm from. I went to Muslim prayer services with him. I got over that anger that would well up inside, and I was gracious to him. And through the course of that semester, shared the gospel with him. My friend Chase did as well. And what I found out was that imam had once attended a Christian church. He got burned and he left. And he became a Muslim during that time. And the way that my friends treated him, he came to my friend Chase at the end of that semester and he said this, if I would have met Christians like you all in that season of my life, I might not be a Muslim today. I might be a Christian. God is going to show compassion on whom he will. God is going to call who he will. But it's your calling in this season of your life 
to share the gospel with every single person that you see and trust that God's going to use it to change their heart. To ask God to channel that righteous anger that we feel at times as a driving force to move forward and to keep pressing deeper and to share the gospel with everyone that you come in contact with.